Hello, Petey. Can you hear me? If you can't, you're in trouble. My culture is based on freedom and self-determination. Freedom is irrelevant. Self-determination is irrelevant. You must comply. That's right, boys. Mondo cool. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. My plans have followed a path unpredicted by the union of NAR and GDI. I want the people of America to be able to work less for the government and more for themselves. Historical Diversions History Over Drinks The destroyer is an essential component of any modern naval force. They were developed as a countermeasure against torpedo boats in the latter part of the 19th century. These torpedo boat destroyers were fast, but were smaller and contained smaller armaments. The United States' first torpedo boat destroyer was commissioned in 1902, but in the 20th century, this type of ship transformed into an almost jack-of-all-trades warship. During World War II, they were commonly used to escort larger ships, such as aircraft carriers or battleships. They were upgraded with anti-air and anti-submarine technologies, as well as a brand new wartime technology, radar. Being posted on a destroyer was hardly free of danger. These improvements came with a downside. The ships had lighter armor than the carriers and battleships they were there to escort. In short, they became high-value targets themselves. Between 1944 and 1945, 173 destroyers were damaged or sunk by kamikaze attacks. Casualties on destroyers became some of the highest in the war, and these ships became known as tin cans. There are accounts that by the end of the war, a posting on a destroyer was considered a death sentence. With the defeat of the Axis and the start of the Cold War, the destroyer became significantly larger than their predecessors. They became truly multi-mission vessels, outfitted with new anti-submarine, surface-to-air, and surface-to-surface missiles. Modern destroyers employ stealth designs, ballistic missile defense systems, and electronic countermeasures. These vessels are capable of both defensive and offensive operations. Guided missile destroyers, or DDGs, rely on radar and computer systems to destroy targets. The Arleigh Burke class is an essential part of the modern U.S. Navy with 73 active ships. They are over 500 feet long, displace nearly 10,000 tons with a top speed of over 30 knots, and are armed to the teeth with over 90 missiles. The USS John S. McCain, or DDG-56, is named after the father of the famous Arizona veteran and politician. This ship was part of the first variant of the Arleigh Burke class, with a crew complement of over 300. Commissioned in 1994, the USS John S. McCain's maiden deployment took it all over the Pacific, with stops in Kochi, India, Fremantle and Newcastle, Australia, and Suva, Fiji. It is still in service today. You may have heard about the ship in 2017, when it collided with a Liberian tanker off the coast of Singapore, tragically killing 10 of its crew. Our guest today, fortunately, was not aboard the ship at that time. In our last History Over Drinks, we profiled Chris John, a torpedoman serving aboard the aircraft carrier USS Nimitz. His naval experience stood in contrast to that of his twin brother. Craig John served aboard the USS John S. McCain from 1993 to 1997 as a quartermaster on its maiden deployment and was part of its commissioning. He was part of the bridge crew that navigated the ship, and his story is a fascinating one. Two brothers, serving on two very different ships. We've heard from one brother. Let's hear from the other. Without further ado, Craig John. Believe it or not, Chris John has a twin brother, Craig John, who also went into the military, also went into the Navy, but they ended up having very different paths. So I'm with Craig right now. So Craig, do you remember whose idea it was to go into the Navy? Do you remember if it was his was it yours or did you guys both get convinced at the same time it was probably a little bit of both uh my original i had always had a career ambition in mind a lot of people do not you know growing up i've always wanted to go into architecture and so it was important for me to go to school 
And I knew I wasn't prepared to go to college right after high school, both because of my um, lack of ability to study real well. <laughs> and secondly, more or less, because, you know, financially, I didn't, my parents didn't really go through college. My dad started college, never finished. And I never had a good grasp on exactly how that all worked. I know in my junior year of high school, everybody seemed to be like, preparing themselves for college. I didn't know how to do that even. And so I knew that I would have to do something coming out of high school that would help pay for college. You know, we weren't, we didn't have an, enough money to be like paying for two kids, you know, both of us graduating at the same time to go to school. And at the same time, we didn't qualify for a lot of the low income stuff either because we were, we made enough money to where it wasn't, or my parents made enough money to where it wasn't a uh, one of those situations either. So joining the Navy seemed like a good idea. At the time, um, my cousin Mitch was, you know, pretty close with us. And he he actually lived with us for a, a period of time. And he was joining the Navy like his dad, my uncle did. Um, and he kind of was trying to convince us to join. The reason being that by his joining the Navy and getting two other recruits underneath him, three other recruits, gave him a bump in the rank right mm. away, which was a huge advantage for him. I mean, that was one reason, but at the same time, I kind of knew that that was the path I would have to go down. Um, Chris was more convinced that he was going to join first. I, I, the whole time, actually, leading up to actually getting in the car and going to MEPS was, I was very unsure about that path. Um, on one hand, the responsible side of me knew that I had to go down that road. The other side of me really wanted to try to make it work through college. There was all these kind of roadblocks that were there that I could have taken, <laughs> but I never ended up doing that. So, yep. It was, it's something that uh, Chris kind of looked at it, or at least from what he explained, was almost like a means to an end. And uh, it's it kind of sounds like it was almost like a similar sort of thing with you where it's, I... I don't necessarily have exactly what I need, but after four years, why not, right? Yeah, I actually had to convince my. I kept convincing myself. I know there's going to be a lot of pressure to re reenlist when when the time came, and there's going to be pushing for me to be a career Navy. It'd be easy to do that, and I'm like, nope, nope. I I know exactly where I want to be, and so I kind of was pretty headstrong in that resolve. So your role ended up being different than uh, than what Chris's was, and we'll probably end up referencing him a lot, and I'm sure he'll appreciate uh, all the free airtime that we're giving him. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, when you guys were going in, you were going in at about the same time, and uh, Chris described that you guys had to essentially take, uh, ended up being like uh, aptitude tests and going through the uh, delayed entry program uh where it was okay you guys were kind of doing like a little bit a little bit before you guys graduated and then okay now you get to go to basic how did the, how did how are your memories of that <laughs> so um yeah the delayed entry program was something where like the navy recruiters could come in and grab like a somebody like in their late junior year of high school and say oh yeah now you're committed you know <laughs> When you, you don't have like the brain power, or the uh, your brain's not fully developed yet. No. <laughs> it, it was um. They they had you sign something that says that you're going to join the Navy and you'd come in every month and kind of you know meet with everybody and so that was going on and I remember being very skeptical from the beginning doing that. Um, I remember them actually sitting in our kitchen, you know, signing the paperwork. My mom was not really 100% interested in us joining the Navy. She didn't want us to, you know. But at the same time, she, um, she, I think she did, knew as much as any any of us all did that, you know, this is going to be the, the way we're going to end up going. So if we're going to make it through schooling. And so, uh, yeah, so my memory was that we we signed up for it. Um, we ended up taking the ASVAB as the aptitude test that you take. Um I score. I remember going into it that I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do when I got in there, and I remember talking to the recruiter and saying, "So, what kind of jobs are there?" And I said, "Well, maybe I could fly airplanes." He said, "No, that's that's officers." I said, "Well, if I'm on a ship, I'd want to like navigate the ship." And he goes, "Well, you could do that." And I was like, "Well, if I if I you know go into the navy, I I think I, that's what I would do. I mean, I wouldn't go otherwise, probably." 
Really? Yeah, that was kind of like my attitude towards it. And we took the ASFAB, and um, they come back at you with these different um, jobs that you could take based on your score, what you're high on. And lo and behold, the quartermaster was one of them, which is a navigation team. And uh, and it came with the Navy College Fund, which my mom was very interested in me grabbing, which in hindsight, that, I'm glad I did. I wouldn't have even thought twice about it before. But when she said that, I was like, oh, yeah, Navy College Fund, it's perfect. I don't even remember the other jobs that were available that I knew that's what I wanted to do. And that's why I took it. So when you say like Navy college fund, what is that? So, you know, in the military, everybody knows about the GI bill. The GI bill is you donate a hundred dollars a month for the first year and you get $12,000 back to go to school. It's a great deal. The Navy college fund adds another 10,000 to that. Oh, geez. So in the end, when all was said and done, I ended up not paying for school at all. So the taxpayers, thank you very much, paid for my <laughs> schooling, which I, I mean, I think it's a good trade-off, actually. I think every military person should get at least that. Uh, the, the GI Bill doesn't give you enough money to, especially these days, to make it through school all the way. And, and, and I think people that actually put their lives on the line like that for four years deserve free college education yeah definitely else when you and chris were taking notes or at least like when you got your results back were you guys looking at like oh they thought i'd be great at engineering oh they thought i'd be good at making macaroni drawings in the corner somewhere like <laughs> did you guys look and kind of see that it's like okay we have the same <laughs> we're identical twins we have the same this were you guys like in very different like categories or was it just kind of well these are the jobs they say we're good at well We'll just kind of do them, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's, that was pretty much the attitude. It's like, oh, yeah, well, this is the job we're good at. I was surprised that Chris did take Torpedo Man's Mate. Um, I thought he would choose a different route, but that he was pretty interested in that, so that's where he went, obviously. For me, you know, I got what I wanted, so I didn't really think much after that about what was available. I know if you score high enough, they, they ask you to, you know, test out to do the nuclear program. Mm which would be a six-year program, and I was not interested in doing six years. I was going to do four years. I was going to college. That was that I was, was very regimented, very strong-headed about it, yes. Okay. Stubborn. Um, when you guys were doing basic training, uh, because of uh, the way that uh, the issue that Chris had with his feet, you guys went from thinking potentially, oh, yeah, we're going to be doing basic training together, and then he gets delayed, and so now you're going by yourself. Uh, did you picture your brother and you going in together? And then how uh, how was your basic training experience, quote unquote? <laughs> so it was it was kind of funny thinking about. Um, I I actually remember one day walking to school with him and like saying, "Well, you know, they might not let you in. If they don't let you in, I'm not going to go." And it was one of those times where I could like use that as an excuse not to go, and. Um, so we didn't know it was going to delay him as far as going into boot camp until towards the very end when they started scheduling me for boot camp. And no, no, Chris, you're going to have to wait till you get the waivers come through Washington. I'm like, oh, so I'm going, okay, that's fine. You know, up to that point, we were actually, we might as well have been Siamese twins. We were together all the time. And so the fact that we were going to split up the way we did was, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't appreciate it as much at the time as now I think back to it. It's like, that was a, it was a pivotal moment in our relationship and in our lives, basically, where we went from like having like this good friend always together to separate lives altogether. I mean, it's kind of funny how much our lives have separated since then. Was that something that you could have anticipated doing? Like if you guys were uh, going straight to college, would you have considered yourselves like, oh, would we go to the same schools or would we do any of this? Or was it really like a well, it was good that we kind of got forced separated because that essentially took any choice out of the matter. Yeah, I think, yeah, for, for Chris probably would have preferred to go separate schools. I think he was kind of like done. <laughs> <laughs> Where, yeah, I think it was good for both of us to separate and it kind of forced us to do so. So your active duty uh, was July of 93 to July of 97. Where, once you got out of basic, where did you end up getting stationed right away? So you go through basic training or boot camp, um, and then you go to A school, which is where you learn about navigation. Uh, navigation school, quartermaster A school, as it's called, 
was in Orlando. So after boot camp, I went home for two weeks and then came back and went to a school in Orlando where I went to boot camp, where Chris was in boot camp still for another, I think he had another two weeks by the time I got back. Um, so my parents flew down to Florida for my boot camp graduation. And then about three weeks later, they brought the whole family down to Orlando for the, uh, for his boot camp graduation. And then they did like different things while I was in A school. I couldn't go. I went to a couple of things with them, like the Disney World, all that stuff. But um, yeah, so it was like a family vacation for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I went to A school. It was a six week program. Um, the first test you take kind of gives you the ability. They have a whole bunch of ship billets that are available once you, uh, you test or once you're, you know, going to graduate A school, they want to know where you're going to go. And so you take your first exam, basically, and based on the test scores, that's how they order you on who gets to select on which bill at first. Basically, you know, we need these many quartermasters in the country. And so um, we had heard there's like three brand new ships that were available, brand new ships being that they weren't even built yet. They were under construction and you'd get to be a plank owner. And that was a big deal. I didn't quite know why that was a big deal. And people would say, well, yeah, because then you don't have to do as much maintenance and it would be a lot easier and it'd be cool, you know. So, you know, that was one of the top choices. And so my test scores, I, I did pretty good on that exam. And um, I think I took placed fifth. But two of those guys were um, going into the SEALs program. And so they didn't select. They kind of deferred their selection, basically. And so I got to pick third, and what was available was uh, a brand new ship out of Hawaii. I had a friend at the time who was also looking to go to Hawaii, so we kind of paired up, you know, uh, on the selection. I kind of wish I didn't because he was. We ended our friendship ended up fizzling after a while, but um, I wanted to go somewhere. Ultimately, I wanted to go to like New England or something where I could ski go over to Europe on, you know, East Pack rather than West Pack. But uh, this one out of Pearl Harbor, it was a brand new ship. I'd get to go to Maine. So I thought, well, I'll do it. And so I, I selected the John S. McCain. It was a destroyer out of, it was being built in Bath, Maine at the time. So um, that was my selection. Finally got my orders and I ended up actually ultimately going opposite direction of the country i went from orlando to san diego where um they had a pre what's called a pre-commissioned debt department for the uss john s mccain there was a pre-commissioned department where we um where a lot of the ship the ship's crew kind of started getting based in this pre-con department so that we can start doing some schooling to get us trained and ready to go on the ship a lot of the a lot of the people coming out of school would be going to this ship, and so there'd be a lot more junior sailors than senior sailors. Plus, there was a lot of work to be done as far as getting ready, you know, when you start a new ship. there's Everything has to be established, and so that's where we were starting to establish that. Um, so I went to San Diego for three months um, over the winter, actually, which was an interesting... Christmas in San Diego is much different than Christmas in Minnesota, you'd yeah, find. Yeah, for sure. Um but got to look, got to meet a lot of the people that were going to be on the ship. Um, uh, there was like five of us in my department, the navigation quartermaster department. I met most of them there. Um, and eventually as time moves on, people got moved over from San Diego to Maine and that happened in different segments. And so I met the first class who was in charge of our, our department when I got over there and then he was gone. And within a month or so, he went over to Maine to start work on, getting the ship ready to, to sail. So I was in Bath for or in, uh, San Diego for three months and um, living in like a, they had a dormitories almost. I was living with three guys. None of them were on my ship. I'm sorry, two guys. There was three of us total in the, in the room. And uh, yeah, so it was almost like a college experience, almost like a dorm experience during that period. And during that period, I started to dislike this friend more and more. <laughs> As we started hanging out more, he just became more of a a guy that just was more annoying than anything. But, yeah. you know, I started making new friends and started 
making friends with guys on my ship too. And eventually I um, went over to Bath, Maine, where it was the pre-commission, I can't even remember what it was called. It was pre-com debt, pre-com something in Bath, Maine, where we, um, we lived where the ship was actually being built. And it was actually, you know, still, it was in the water, but they were finishing up the interior stuff. And so we lived in hotel rooms. A lot of us did. Some of them had to live on, on the base in Bath, um, in Brunswick, Maine. Bath was a close by, and I lived in a hotel room, which was really nice. They gave me my own hotel room, and we had, uh, we had, what do they call it? You get paid for meals and stuff. Oh, reimbursed. Yeah. Per diems. Per diem. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was looking for. Yeah, we had the per diem. And so we were paying for our own meals and stuff. And I started to really kind of learn to be on my own then, you know, living in my own um, hotel room. Um, my cousin Mitch actually got stationed in Rhode Island. And so he'd come up every once in a while and hang out. And we, we spent some time together then. Got some chance to ski during that period. We were there for maybe two months before the ship was actually commissioned. And we moved on board the ship. So when... You're a part of a commissioning uh, of a ship. I'm picturing, like, since the ship is still under construction, I'm picturing, like, random, you know, steel beams being put up and stuff like that. When you're there, what exactly are they having you do uh, in terms of, like, getting the ship operational? So being in the navigation department, we would get what's called charts. You would call them maps. You call them maps in A school. You do push-ups. They're, they're <laughs> called charts. And so there'd be charts of the different areas around the world that we had to keep on board as a base. We had to get all that information updated because, you know, they would issue a chart and there would be changes that would occur on different parts of the chart that you'd have to go through and have to update. And so a lot of the time, we, we spent a lot of time during those days kind of updating charts, updating the publications, making sure they were, they were the most current information on there. And basically, generally, kind of getting like the uh, basic things that you would have on a ship ready to go. Um, there was a lot of beams. You had to serve on welding watch, it was called. So while there was somebody welding, some some junior sailor would have to sit there watch the guy weld, but not look directly into the light with a little mask on, uh, making sure there wasn't any kind of like fire or anything happening based on what this guy's doing. Just basically making sure they're doing their job right. So you're wearing this welder's mask, can't really see their eyes or anything like that. So I spent a lot of time sleeping. Sitting there. <laughs> Could be shot now, but no. Um, so that's what we did. That was a part of the, the whole building up ceremony. Finally, once... Around June, around June was when we moved on board the ship finally. And so we started moving on the ship even before the actual big commissioning ceremony. Now, um, about the USS John, uh, John S. McCain, um, it's an Arleigh Burke class guided missile destroyer. What is the purpose of a destroyer for those of us who have never served on one? Well, destroyers is kind of like the small, fast little ship that that has a full armament of of uh, munitions that are capable of taking care of itself so it, it's uh, the equivalent of a football running back I suppose because it can move around real quick it's very um, versatile and it um, it's smaller but it, it's fast and mobile now was was the uh, McCain a part of like a, a task force group? Was it by itself uh, when you were sailing or when you actually got underway? When we started, we became an independent task task group. I'm trying to remember the name of it. Um, and I don't know why that was exactly. We weren't a part of any kind of carrier group yet. So, uh, yeah, once we got commissioned, we were considered a part of its own task force. I should probably clarify that John S. McCain uh, is the same name as the senator from Arizona, the one that ran for president back in, I think, 2008. Um, the ship was actually named after his grandfather and father. It was named after two John S. McCains, and it was the second John S. McCain to ever be commissioned. Um, there was a 
a frigate that was called the USS Johnson McCain. It was a had a hull number of 36 many, many years ago, and that was named for the uh, senior Jonas McCain. This one was named for both, and um, so Jonas McCain Sr. was in charge of the Western Pacific Fleet during World War II, and then his son became took over during Vietnam. An interesting story about Jonas McCain Sr. was um, he finally retired after World War II. He went home and they had a big retirement party for him. He sat down in his chair after the party, all tired, and never got up again. He died right there. Jeez. Uh, <laughs> so it's interesting because there's a picture of them kind of departing ways, Jonas McCain and his... Sidney McCain was what it, he went by, Sidney, and uh, his son Jack was junior. And uh, that was the last time they ever saw each other. So it was interesting to see that picture. But yeah, so it was named after the two senior guys and so for the commissioning obviously the senator was very much involved and his brother and his family so now when you guys are underway like as you're as you're essentially you're considered a quartermaster um what exact and you mentioned charts earlier mm -hmm. in terms of like updating is this like you're getting information from other ships. Are you getting information in those days from satellites, uh, from submarines? Like, in terms of like, you know, making sure like charts are updated. Like, where are you getting that stuff from? Uh, some packets that they'd send from. Um, I'm trying to remember where they came from. It was a while ago, but they they came from a central location where they they draw out the charts and any changes and things went through them and then got sent out to the different ships. These are paper copies that you get. And, you know, it gives you coordinates of where this information is, how you have to change the information so you would change the information by hand. This was back before computers, before Internet was anything. This was just before the Internet. The Internet kind of took off while I was in the Navy, about 96 or so. Okay. So, um, yeah, so this was all pre-computers. We had navigation systems that we used, you know, GPS. I knew about GPS much longer before than the general public. That was something the Navy utilized originally when i picture a you know navigation for ships is completely inaccurate i'm thinking like the titanic giant wooden wooden steering wheel what is involved in the actual like navigation of a ship is it you know are you guys using joysticks are you still using wheels uh do you have a bunch of levers like how is like a destroyer navigated um i i assume that it's changed since you know, I was in the Navy, but at the time it was a, it was a steering wheel, but it wasn't like a big wooden wheel. I think we got some kind of fancier wheel, but it was a small version. So it's not much different than what you have for a steering wheel for a speedboat. And even the, um, the helm was operated similar to a speedboat with a, with a, almost a shifter that you move to, you know, certain positions, whether it be full speed or half throttle. And there was two of them, one for each engine, basically, or one for each turbine. So specifically, like, where did, what did you find yourself doing, like, on a daily basis? Was it, was it you at the wheel? Was that, or were you, you know, updating positions? What, what was the day in the life of, you know, a quartermaster? So it's different when you're in port or when you're underway, but I'm assuming you're asking about underway at sea. Yeah. So at sea, you, you serve what's called the quartermaster of the watch. And so you're standing at a chart table. So it's like a big table that has the chart on top of it. Um, and we know where we're going based on some preliminary um, mapping out where we're going. And so during the time that we're going, I'm constantly taking fixes, what it's called, which is um, locating ourselves based on, at the time was GPS, but you could do... You could do reading off the stars, sextant navigation, which would be what would happen before sat satellite navigation was available. And so you'd every 15 minutes have to locate and make sure that you're in a good place, that you're heading on course, and that you are um, not in bad waters. So just constantly locating yourselves and determining where you're going to be based on you know the speed of the ship and the direction you're heading. Um, you're doing other things too. Uh, we were in charge of time, 
So we had to make sure that the time was accurate by chronometers, which are accurate clocks that you have to call into uh, a specific place out in London, that Greenwich, England, basically, that would transmit the time, the exact time under air quotes. Um, we were in charge of weather, so we had to look at the weather conditions and we would uh, write up a, kind of a synopsis of what was going on, the cloud cover, the wave action, um, of the, the dry bulb temperature and things like that. We would, we would mark that down, send it down to the radio, radio team who would ship it out to the weather outlets that, they, that kind of uh, tracked where the weather was at. We were in charge of the ship's log, so any major issues that occurred on the ship, even as small as like what time we actually make a turn or what time we up the speed or anything that happened on the ship, we would log down from time, the event, and then like that would get signed off by the navigator, the um, party, or the uh, officer on the deck. On a regular day. Uh, are you doing all of these duties like, you know, individually or is it, oh, you're updating charts or, oh, you're going to be the one responsible? Was it pretty much like a fairly closer knit sort of situation where there were only a couple people that did certain things or was it expected that, hey, you're on shift, you can do any and all of these things? When you're on duty, you're the only quartermaster on the watch. So you're the, you're the guy on duty doing all of those things. So you'd be working, a, depending on how many quartermasters we had. So let's say I'm working a four hour watch was typical. So for four hours, I'd be in charge of doing all of that while we're at sea. And then I'd be relieved by another quartermaster. Um, what during the workday when you're underway, you would be updating charts, updating publications. You'd be doing other, other tasks that are assigned to you. Um, you would have, you'd be in charge of making sure certain so we were assigned certain areas of the ship that we had to make sure was up to, up to code you know for fire hoses and things like that you always had to do maintenance and so you'd have other jobs that you would do outside of the watch but when you're on watch that's what you would do one thing that chris ended up saying a lot was uh you guys were or at least he was drilled constantly did you guys have you know battle drills like constantly or was that something that you may or may not have gotten out of since you were on the bridge. No, you don't get out of it. No, yeah. uh, there's constantly there's constantly drills going on. So you would do. There were those that were scheduled. There were surprise drills that they would do. They'd almost drill so much that you'd be like, if in a real event were to occur, that you'd almost like, nah, is this real? Yeah. <laughs> but um, Fire drills were a regular thing when we were in port that they would do that you'd have to make sure that you were ready for a fire because that would be the ultimate issue. Like a fire on a ship would be like a fire on a plane. It would suck. Mm -hmm. You're stuck in the middle of the ocean and the ship is burning down. So we were constantly drilling um, and you didn't get out of it no matter where you were. Um, on the bridge, actually, we were more exposed. I was more exposed to the officers than anybody being up on the bridge all, all the time. Now, are you interacting... Um... You know, are you interacting with the captain, first officer? Are you interacting like with those guys? Uh, like, because assuming that everything is happening on the bridge where you're at, um, are you overhearing uh, a lot of the happenings that are going on, or is it very compartmentalized that it's like, well, if I'm doing this job, then I'm kind of isolated from some of that? No, you heard everything. You heard quite a bit actually. Um, so the person on I'm on watch is quartermaster of the watch. An officer would be officer of the deck would be in charge of the bridge basically while the ship is underway. The captain would come up every once in a while whenever he felt like it because he could do whatever he wanted to. And uh, when he was even when he's on the bridge, he wasn't necessarily in charge as much as the officer of the deck. You know, if the captain were to say, well, officer of the deck, we should do this. Officer of the deck would take that, of course. But um you always respected the captain. He was the ultimate guy, you know, even when he came up on the bridge, officer on deck, you know, and you, everybody stand at attention until he says at ease, that type of thing. It was very, um, very regimented military protocol. Do you have pre-calculated routes or do you essentially have 
yes, we're going to be going to India or we're going to be going to Australia or we're going to be going to like a specific like city. You guys are the ones that figure out like what the route is or are they recommending that it's like, yep, we're going to be going, you know, we're going to be going southwest or we're going to be going, you know, northeast and you guys figure it out. Like, how did that how did that come about? We figured it out. Um, it wasn't QMS and John doing it. It was it was QM1 Headman, you know, somebody that that had had a lot of experience. But, you know, I, I would help out with it. And it's funny when you when when you look at a map, there's two different kinds of maps. There's a it's called a nomic projection and there's a Makeda projection. Anomic projection you'll see is very rounded and you'll see like the countries get longer or more pronounced to the north. And that's because or to the south and north. And that's because of the way because the earth is actually round and you're trying to put it on a flat projection. So you would take that original nomic projection and you would draw a line between say you're going from Pearl Harbor to Hong Kong. You draw a straight line. And if you were to take, and then you would take and you would get all the coordinates every so often from Pearl Harbor to Hong Kong, then you would put it on a Mercator projection, which is what we navigated off of. And you'd find that that line, which is called a rum line. Did I mention that? Well, you mentioned it now. <laughs> okay. It's called a rum line. And when you put it on the Mercator projection, you'd see that it segments and it's not exactly wrong, straight. And so you'd have to follow that line. So every once in a while, you'd have to do what's kind of a correction. I don't know, every 30 degrees of um, longitude you went. And so it was a little bit more complicated than basically just guesstimating where you're going. So, yeah, you'd, you would draw the lines. At least this is what we did back then. You'd draw the lines out and, you know, you'd have the charts ready. And so as you went, you had to change charts, obviously, as you got to a got off of one chart onto the next one and there'd be a line there and that's the line you tried to follow to get to a certain location is your team the one that's determining like what speed the ship is going or is it essentially will we make any course corrections or we make any speed corrections as we go along just to make sure we're on the right route or how does that work a little bit of both so i would um as we came up to one of those turns, or if we started going off course, I would make recommendations to the conning officer. The conning officer worked with the officer of the deck. Conning officer was in charge of what was happening at the helm, the people steering the ship and running the, the helm controls. I would um, say, conning officer, navigation recommends 270, 270I. Helmsman, come left 15 degrees to 270. Come left 15 degrees, 270 I, you know, then they repeat it back to make sure that they got it. Then they would turn the, the helm to 15 degrees rudder to turn to 270. And once they reach 270, Connie officer, we're at 270, helmsman I, you know, that type of thing. So it was back and forth, and that's kind of how it worked. As far as speed goes, that could be determined by us or by the, the, um, officers there was a navigation officer that was in charge of our department the navigator as he was known he um oversaw what we did you know he would um, check our work obviously and he'd be ultimately responsible to the captain what was going on any questions went through him okay i could imagine that if you're get, being given audio orders especially during either drills or potentially hearing other things would the uh, would the bridge be like a really noisy place to be or was it pretty much like, yeah, it was busy like for a few seconds and then whole bunch of nothing busy for, you know, a few seconds, whole bunch of nothing, like kind of like a hurry up and wait and then wait some more. Uh, was it hard to kind of focus or was it pretty much, yep, I only got orders from this person. So all I had to do was, you know, listen to this particular person or did you have to listen to everybody? <laughs> It could be. It was busy at times. You know, during the day, it was more busy than at night. At night, it was so quiet that you'd you'd have to really concentrate on keeping awake. Uh, that's where I started drinking coffee. It was on on the bridge of a ship. I couldn't fall asleep, so I drank a lot of crappy coffee and I got used to drinking coffee, black coffee. Um, 
But yeah, it would get quiet and then busy. You're supposed to, anybody could, you know, talk to you or whatever, but uh, basically we took orders from, you know, our chain of command or the officer of the deck or Connie officer. So, so on the on the Nimitz, Chris was part of a crew of thousands of people. The destroyer was crewed by approximately three hundred people, give or take. Um, was that considered from your end? Was that like more of like a tightly knit crew? Obviously, like uh, you know, thousands versus hundreds. But if you interact with the same like fifteen twenty people, doesn't matter if it's three hundred versus three thousand. How did you? How did you feel, at least in terms of the size of the ship? It was it was similar to high school where like you, you know, there is 200 people. So you 200, 300 people. So you knew everybody that was on the ship. Basically, you knew kind of who they were. But it got a little bit clicky into like, you know, the operations people hung out together. And, you know, a lot of the engineers hung out together. And, you know, um, there would be some intermixing, but. Yeah, I hung up with probably about probably the same 10, 15 people. But, you know, you got to know everybody. Now, um, looking at uh, the Wikipedia page, because that's how I do my research for literally everything on this show. Um, mm -hmm. Some of the places that uh, the McCain uh, ended up visiting during your time, uh, places like uh, uh, Kochi, India, Fremantle and Newcastle, Australia, and... Uh, Suva and Fiji uh, what were some of the places that you remember visiting and were there any particular times that uh, you truly felt like you were traveling traveling the world so to speak oh yeah um, it was it was eye-opening traveling the world it took a long time to get over to Hong Kong so we I think Chris explained Westpac what that was and I won't get too much into that so we ended up being on the same carrier group. So they assigned us to the Nimitz carrier group, which was great. Um, well, they came over to Pearl Harbor, and we um, or we met them. And actually, we met them in Hong Kong. And uh, so we met them in Hong Kong and then became a part of their carrier group. So it was interesting to seeing different places. Going to Hong Kong was the first stop, and that was around uh, Christmas time, I think, Christmas, New Year's. And it's surreal that you're there you know you're there and it's like oh this is what i saw on tv i kind of joked i wrote a letter to my parents once we crossed the international dateline i joked like the color of the water changed or something like that it, and i meant it because it, it was so much the same that you wouldn't even know that you were there but yeah you get to hong kong seeing hong kong was very fascinating singapore we were all kind of like really rigid about because around that time there was a kid actually from Minnesota that went to Singapore broke one of the rules and ended up getting caned you know just uh, disciplined and so it was known as a real clean city and you had to like obey all these laws and regulations and rules and so we were very careful in Singapore but we had a good time everywhere we went um, Singapore was fun uh, I ended up getting back to the ship late one time and getting in trouble. And so I ended up getting stuck on the ship for extra time where they wouldn't let me take uh, some some liberty time, some time off. When we got to India, um, we ran some operations with the Indian Navy, which was kind of fun. But then uh, we had a day to go visit India. I didn't get a chance to get off the ship that day because of what happened in Singapore. Uh, we went from India, we ended up going to the Persian Gulf. And so that was a surreal experience in itself. I remember going through the Suez Canal and seeing Iraq for the first time and thinking, that's Iraq. There it is. Because you hear all this bad stuff about it and just to actually visually see it was just fascinating. And then getting into the Middle East and, um, you know, we, were, we went to... Um, to Bahrain and to uh, Dubai. And Dubai was not the city that it is today. Today it's like this huge Mecca. It was it was half the place it was in United Arab Emirates. And it was almost like stepping back in time looking at kind of like the way their city was built. And you'd hear the calling to prayer sound every once in a while and just seeing all these 
these men dressed in these white robes with the turbans on their heads and it was just a surreal experience and then we would um we were riding in a rental car somewhere and i remember going by by pastures and there's camels out there grazing almost like like we would see like cows or horses here in america so it was fascinating um Australia obviously was a, a trip in of itself. We went to Perth, Fremantle, Australia first. And we were there for about a week. And um, just, it felt like going into Europe. It was a very exciting, it was exciting to be there. It was on the other side of the uh, the equator and that had a whole ceremony. I think Chris talked about that quite a bit. Yep. Uh, to become a shellback. And um, what was... Uh, interesting going into that to Australia was because like everybody looks forward to seeing Australia we actually had a guy that went um he met some women over there he was married he met a woman over there decided that he wasn't going back and wanted to de declare himself an Australian citizen and as it turned out Australia said no we're not going to take you as like a astray <laughs> from the U.S. Navy and so you, for a period of time, he was a man without a home. <laughs> but in uh, UA is an authorized absence, obviously. But yeah, that was kind of a weird situation. From Perth, Australia, we went south of Australia over to Newcastle, which was technically Sydney. And we went and saw Sydney, Australia, which was a huge city. It was a lot bigger than I expected it to be. Um, the the thing with Australia was that they were very much against nuclear armament and they were, you know, we, we were given like some kind of statement we were supposed to say if they were asked us if there was nuclear weapons on board. And I never knew whether or not we had nuclear weapons on board or not. They wouldn't. It was a need to know basis. And if you didn't need to know, you didn't know. Yeah. Basically, that's the way it works. So it was always kind of frightening. Like, is, are they going to come attack us? We gave tours on the ship, and it was interesting to give tours and talk to the people and get to know people over there. Was that something that, uh, were you interested in a public-facing role, or was that something that, like, they ordered me to do a tour, so that's what I did? <laughs> it was an order to be a tour, and that's what I did. <laughs> yes, it was very much that. And it wasn't like you, you try to be a public-facing role, but um, it was that, okay, you're on duty, we have people that could be, that are going to tour. So you, you're going to be a part of the tour guide and you're going to show them around a little bit and you're going to be really happy about it. Yeah. <laughs> so it was interesting after leaving Sydney, the ship had put out an advertisement for a Tiger cruise, which is where you have civilians come on board to ride the ship with you. Um, the intention was to do a Tiger cruise from Fiji to Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. And so I just kind of, you know, saw that. I sent it over to my parents, not thinking much of it. Next thing I know, my dad's coming. And uh, so he decided to do the Tiger Cruise. Um, he was one of maybe eight different, you know, fathers or brothers or somebody that decided to do this. And so uh, we met him. At, so when we got to Fiji, you know, we were there for about a day or two. And then I had to go find my way to the Fiji airport to, uh, to meet him. <laughs> and he... He uh, landed on this little this little airport in the middle of Fiji to see my dad just kind of fly on this little small little plane <laughs> and uh, go back to the ship where they had like a place for him in the birthing to sleep. And uh, we actually got a, a one meal on the officers um, in the officers uh, state or what do they call that the officers galley dining area. The mess. The, well, it was the mess halls for the enlisted, the officers had a special name for theirs. I can't think of it off the top of my head, but we ate with the officers and the captain sat next to the captain and talked to him. It was funny because I I put his name down as Willard and he kept calling him Willard. And, you know, <laughs> he's known as Bill, obviously, but uh, but that was a that was a fun little thing because we got to Pearl Harbor, back to Pearl Harbor after a Westpac tour. It must have been. May or something like that by the time we got back after the six months and so Chris was on leave or they were stationed they, they had gotten back to Pearl Harbor ahead of us because they ended up going through a whole different 
scenario where they got caught up with the South China Sea issue and they ended up not coming down to Australia for obvious reasons. And so they ended up at Pearl Harbor. They were about two weeks ahead of us. And so from there, the three of us all flew back to Minneapolis from Hawaii um, home. So we went through Los Angeles, which is interesting. We had a overnight stay in Los Angeles. So we went and saw some things there too. So it was kind of fun. It was a different, um, but when we crossed back over the equator, we crossed at the International Dateline, which was a kind of a momentous place because, you know, as you cross the equator, you're considered a shellback. If you cross the equator and the International Dateline at the same time, you're called a golden shellback. So my dad and I have that same honor. <laughs> nice. So he would probably not remember that he has that honor. <laughs> So you had mentioned earlier at kind of the start that you always knew that after the four years, you were pretty much going to be done. Uh, when uh, when your tour was ending, was that something that uh, pretty much everybody knew that it's like, yeah, we're not even going to try to reenlist him? Um, or was it something where it's like, well, maybe would Craig still be interested? <laughs> How did that work? Well, I was pretty, um, I was pretty stubborn about not re-enlisting. I, I had a really good friend on ship. Uh, he was a signalman, Jack Etheridge. He, um, he and I hung out quite a bit together, you know, throughout the entire Westpac and stuff. And so when, um, so when our, our enlistments came up about the same time and he was trying to talk to me into going into Virginia, adding another two years to do this, uh, small boat thing. And I remember like briefly considering and thinking, no, no, I, I don't want to do this. And so I kind of, that was kind of like really the only time that somebody really tried to push me. Um, at the end of my enlistment, the ship changed home ports from Pearl Harbor to Japan, to Yokosuka, Japan. And um, a lot of times this, people like have like a month left or something like that. They wouldn't make them go, but they, they, we had a new captain that came on board that time. There's a change of guard there. And the new captain wanted to keep the ship intact, as he called it. And everybody went to Japan. And so I was going to Japan. So I went to Japan for about a month. That was a, that was a long trip. I knew it was my last trip, which was interesting. And once we got there, we, we had some, some free time. You know, we, we stood our duties, obviously. But uh, for the most part, for three weeks, we got to do whatever we wanted. And I was kind of, uh, even when we went back, I was like, I had maybe a week left. And and so I just did what I wanted anyways. Nobody really said anything. Um, you can't be discharged from an overseas base. And so about a week before my actual discharge date, I was shipped to Bremerton, Washington. And uh, so that's where Chris was stationed and Chris was going to get discharged about two weeks later he was able to save up enough leave to where he could get discharged early and so i ended up um flying into ended up going to uh bremerton to be discharged and i stayed you know they had navy housing there or whatever and we stayed there and we're discharged and then we sherry flew out and we drove i had a car at the time i bought a mustang when i was in hawaii it was a it was a 5.0 GT Mustang convertible, which was great in Hawaii. Maybe not the best idea for Minnesota. <laughs> but um, when I left Hawaii, I had it shipped to Bremerton, Washington. And so we drove that, and Chris drove his Bronco, and we went on a little bit of a sightseeing tour all the way home to Minneapolis. We went actually from Seattle down to San Diego, across to Texas, and then up to Minneapolis. A nice little trip. Now, you had mentioned that you were kind of based out of uh, based out of Hawaii. After you're done, why did you want to move back to Minnesota? <laughs> you, you do appreciate certain things about Minnesota that you, when you leave it, especially being in a warm climate, you appreciate the different seasons. You know, everybody thinks that they'd want, and maybe they do appreciate the warm weather all the time, it got old for a while, after a while for me. Uh, Christmas time isn't the same without snow. 
Um, you know, there's cold days. I'm like, huh, maybe I, Hawaii is not so bad. But uh, I wanted to come home to Minnesota. I wanted to, to go to the University of Minnesota, pursue my studies in architecture. Um, I don't know why I was so set on the University of Minnesota, but that's where I ended up going. I, you know, in retrospect, there's probably other schools I could have gone to. That would have been a better education, but I ended up at the University of Minnesota. It was home, so that's that's where I headed. That's where my friends were. You know, I got to get back together with some of those guys, and and yeah, I ended up meeting Jen out there, and then the rest is history. Jen being your wife and uh, still happily married after all these years. Yeah, so. somehow, some way. Yeah, we're still 35 <laughs> years later. Yeah, 25 years later. But yeah, um, so pretty much after that was the end of your active duty was uh, 97. And Chris had mentioned that he was uh, considered inactive for another four years. Um, that was presumably what uh, what yours was too, correct? Yes. And you didn't... Uh, um, this was also pre nine eleven, and you didn't have to deal with like any of, any of that sort of thing, right? No, there was always kind of this concern though that they'd somehow it was almost like PTSD that they'd somehow have to call me back. I was finally on the road to where I wanted to be and be in college. I was just waiting for the other foot to drop, and so I was kind of always wondering what's going to happen next. And any like international incident had me on high alert for the first couple of years. After a while, you just kind of forget that you are on that status, and finally it dropped off. I was just looking at my uh, certificate recently and noticing how data, how close the date was to when 9-11 occurred and just how that could have changed everything, you know, if it would have occurred earlier than... Yeah, well, and I would imagine that, uh, especially like the bombing of the USS Cole, you know, things like that, where it's like, oh, gosh, what's going to happen now sort of thing. Yeah, that was one that was one of those international incidents like, oh no, they're gonna call me back now. You know, are we gonna get into a, some kind of a battle and I'm gonna get called back? Great, you know. Yeah. I remember the USS Colby in particular is something that kind of got my attention. For sure. Well, there's also something that uh in my research as far as uh the McCain is concerned, in two thousand seventeen there was a collision with the McCain and then the uh the Alnick MC. Uh, off the coast of Singapore and Malaysia. Uh, had you happened to uh, look into that at all, uh, with that being your uh, former ship? Of course, it was my ship. Um, yeah, when I heard about that, that was uh, very kind of scary because nobody knew what happened at first and we were wondering, was it like, uh, it was purposely done by some kind of uh, country trying to get revenge or something. And I remember being concerned about what happened and the people on board and kind of knowing where it hit it was kind of a it was a bad location so I was kind of always nervous about it I always kind of wondered what happened to you know looking into it a little bit it sounds like it was some um some errors ha happened up on the bridge uh from what I under you know I I always saw yeah some people lost their jobs that day for sure and you know I kind of when you're underway you always have like lookouts looking out for issues like that there's people that actually stand and scan the seas making sure that there's nothing that's gonna attack or for any kind of anomalies going on um people floating overboard or whatever you know you can you don't know what you're gonna find and for something like that to happen it would be a pretty serious issue i i didn't see that coming how simple it was well and did you have anything like obviously nothing to that effect but did you ever have like any close calls or anything that you thought whew, it's a good thing uh good thing that didn't happen on my watch sort of thing <laughs> yeah i don't think anything that that happened that was like unusually scary i know that like you do what's called an underway replenishment where like a supply ship would come up alongside of you you connect via ropes across and that's how you get more food munitions and stuff the supply ship would send you over your groceries and anything else that you needed. And so, like, that's as close to a ship that you'd get while you're moving. You know, it's always unpredictable how those waves are going to affect how the ship bends and moves. And to be so close quarters to a ship is very dangerous. And so you had to take special precautions during those times. I know that there were some times where we got into high seas, which were pretty 
pretty hard to handle. Like on a carrier, you you know, it'd be almost like being on a on a cruise ship or something where it's like just pretty smooth sailing. Destroyers feel it all. You feel every kind of movement. And when you're in 12 foot seas, you really see some movement. And there was a couple of times I remember actually sliding across the floor, like losing my balance, sliding across the floor and almost like really doing some serious damage to my knee as it came up on like a like a, a stand that was on the side of the bridge. Another time working in the galley, just like being attacked by potatoes because <laughs> the potatoes came loose and they were just kind of rolling at me. It was uh, so, yeah, there were times where the seas got kind of crazy and you, you had to be worried about such things. But another, nothing as close of an incident as that must have been. That must have been pretty tough for them. Was there um, was there any particular time that you're on the bridge and then you're hearing, uh, you know, hearing a change of order or hear something where it's, okay, something's going down. Something is, you know, incredibly unusual or was it usually just more, okay, this is probably a drill or something like that was probably more common, I'd imagine. There was a few, you know, I remember being in the Persian Gulf and um, I, I, one of the things that really kind of struck me was the first time I heard this is U.S. warship, you know, John S. McCain. And to be called a U.S. warship, it just kind of like struck me like this is a, a ship of war. This is like this is big stuff. And, and you're representing the United States. But when you're over in the Persian Gulf, you're kind of watching these little boats that are coming around and making sure that they're. Everything's savvy, you know, basically what's going on. And sometimes, you know, you'd have boarding parties that would go aboard these ships, these little boats, and calling to these boats and telling them, we're coming aboard, and you have this boarding party that went and did that. Um, I never had to do that, but I remember watching it. It was very interesting to see because you never know what was going to happen, what kind of uh, what kind of uh, or spark that would be created from that. Um I remember one time actually being in the Persian Gulf and going, I was on the fantail, which is back in the helicopter pad. I was the only one back there and I was kind of walking back there and then this helicopter came real close and it was an Iraqi helicopter. And one of our, um, one of our guns is called the Sea Wiz. It, it tracks like movements and stuff like that. It actually engaged and, and aimed at the helicopter because it got so close. And oh I remember gosh. like sitting there thinking, oh my God, what's going to happen? And the helicopter kind of turned around and left because it saw sea was kind of engage it. But uh, yeah, th those were some of those incidents that kind of stick with you and like, whoa. Yeah, what could have happened? What could have happened? What could have happened? I'm glad it didn't. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of like, especially like having this much time pass uh, between when you were done to today, uh, were there particular lessons or particular things that from your service that you're like, I'm really glad that this happened, or this is something that I'm glad it happened then because I don't want this to happen now. Were there any particular things that still uh, you carry with you? There are. I mean, you you learn lessons as you kind of go. Um, there's regrets that I have that I didn't go see certain things when I was, you know, in these different countries and spend so much time with, you know, guys, you know, on the pursuit of drinking and partying and stuff like that um but it was good time to kind of get some of that out too so that when i went to college i was very serious about going to school and and uh in my studies you know by the time i got to school i was four years older than a lot of the kids you know and i got invited to some parties and stuff and i didn't really wasn't didn't feel compelled to join them on that type of thing or have like the school relationships as much as i had you know I had my girlfriend at the time and my wife or whatever. And um, so it was nice that that kind of got taken care of before I went to school. So when I went to school, I could study school, you know, architecture and become that much more ready for the real world. Well, speaking of the real world, what are you doing these days? Um, uh, I'm a principal architect at uh, Baker Associates. We are an architecture design firm. Uh, based out of Minneapolis, we work on uh, different types of projects, branded retail, um, get into more into hospitality, dentist, medical type things. Well, great. I thank you so much for your time. And it's been uh, it's been really nice to be able to hear uh, such good stories. And uh, and thank you for your service. Well, thank you. Appreciate your listening to me. <laughs>
Hi, everyone. Thank you for listening to Historical Diversions. If you enjoyed this episode, your feedback would be greatly appreciated. Five-star reviews, positive comments, and even just telling your friends about us helps. We're on social media, Twitter, Facebook, etc., but the mothership is historicaldiversions.com. You can find show notes, ways to support, and other fun info on there. Thanks again for listening. This podcast was written and produced by your host through Historical Diversions, LLC. Any other rights belong to their respective owners.